It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, hey, hey. Greetings. Once again, thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and for supporting the podcast. We do have a groundswell of support underway, so we're very appreciative of that. Your likes, ratings, and reviews, and your sharing of our posts on social media are starting to move the needle in some places, so we're very appreciative of that. So please keep up the work there, and it helps us move the project along. In addition, if you go to ambiguouslyblind.com, you'll get transcripts and other links to some products that we talk about on the episodes, as well as links to our Patreon page and our merch store, which has produced quite a few tremendous teas. Perhaps you've got your own tremendous tea, or you've seen one in the wild, and if you have, I'd appreciate you taking a picture, sending it over to us, john at amblind.com, or simply tag us on Facebook or Instagram or any of those other social media outlets. Or if you feel like you need to get your very own tremendous tea or ambiguously blind tea or mug or hat or sticker or whatever floats your boat, head on over to ambiguouslyblind.com and click on the merch link and you will be very close to having your very own. All of those ways that you support the podcast help us produce more content like this. I'm going to visit with a fellow meningitis survivor and National Meningitis Association advocate, Adam Busatel. After discovering Adam and hearing his story myself, realize that we have a lot of things in common and I want him to share his story with us as well as discuss his podcast. He too is a podcast host. His is called The Dad Experience and he talks about all kinds of different dad related things. So we're going to visit about that too. So Adam, thanks for hanging in there with me. Welcome to the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, John. Really happy to be here. Really excited to talk to you a little bit about some things we have in common and uh, uh, quite a few after we talked on kind of offline here a little bit. So I'm really excited to talk to you. We do have quite a few things in common. The The beginning of our things in common is meningitis, though. We're both meningitis survivors, and I think we got it pretty close to the same age and pretty close to the same time period. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I contracted meningitis in 1999. In October of 1999, I was a sophomore at Michigan State University. So I don't know, was that you were a year before me, I think, maybe? Is that what we talked about? Yes, I was February of 1998. Yeah. I was also a sophomore. I'm at Texas Tech University out in Lubbock, which is in West Texas. I am familiar mm-hmm. with Michigan State. So we were the same class of in school, but yeah. about a year or so apart. Yep. 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 Yeah. So I had it in 99 while at Michigan State University. I, um, you know, it was, it was a crazy whirlwind. I didn't know much about it. We, my family knew nothing about it. Um, and it kind of took us by storm, you know? So I, um, realistic and really how it happened is, you know, just, just like a lot of stories, you know, we had some of, some of the things that typical signs, but not totally. So like I always start off like the Friday night before, um, I, I was, went to the hospital and was diagnosed with meningitis. It was, I was in the Michigan state marching band and we would get together on Friday nights just cause we get up so early on Saturday morning on game day morning. It was actually a big day too. It was the Michigan, Michigan state game. And I know you, we talked a little bit about, about yeah, that uh, all is those a- so it was a big game it was a big deal um and i just you know so the friday before i was hanging out with some friends and eh, i felt a little under the weather so i said i'm just gonna go home go sleep i'll see everybody in the morning at rehearsal and uh i did that and uh, woke up 
partway through that night and early, you know, late that night, early that morning. Yeah, had the chills, had the had a fever, wasn't feeling good. Um, took my temperature. I actually called uh, my parents and just said, "Hey, I'm not feeling good." They're like, "Well, just say, you know, take it easy. We're coming up the next day." You know, so I, I did. I took a temperature, went back to sleep. Woke up in the morning, couldn't do any of the stuff for marching band that day. Um, I called in for that stuff, and I was terrified because I'm like, "Man, I'm missing this game." People probably think that I'm like. I don't want him to think that I'm like crazy or was out partying or something the night before and why <laughs> the morning, that was the thing that was, it was concerning me at that point. And so, yeah, I missed all those rehearsals and I was hoping that I would make it for the game and step off and all that good stuff to, for pregames and all that, that good stuff. And, um, so yeah, I went that, that, that got to game time and I still wasn't feeling great. So I just said, listen, I, I can't be there. I, there's no way I wasn't making it. I was, you know, sick at that point. My, my parents were up and my brother was going to school there as well. He was, he's a few years older than me and his birthday is actually on October 10th and this is October 9th. So we were going to celebrate his birthday and I said, well, you guys go to the game. I'm going to stay in the, my dorm. You know, I'll, you know, try and get some better. I'll, I'll, I'll we called the call in, uh, call in nurse line and kind of explain the symptoms. Then the call in nurse basically said, you're probably dehydrated, have the flu, um, eat something, drink some liquids. And I did. And I was starting to feel a little bit better. And my parents went to the game and, uh, I do remember Michigan uh, state winning that game, which was a bummer because I wasn't at the game, but that's all right. I, you know, hey, um, wins I was, a win. I was, we'll take a wins it, a win. Know? I'll take it. Right. So I was feeling a little bit better. So, you know, normally when I you know want to refresh myself and kind of get back into the swing of things. I try, I go and take a shower just to kind of maybe give me a second wind. And so I made it to the shower, I was showering and I remember passing out in the shower. And then I remember like toweling off and crawling back to bed and crawling in bed. And my parents came back from the game with my brother. And, you know, a couple of years before I was sick, there were a couple of Michigan state students that had been diagnosed with meningitis. And then I think they, unfortunately, I think they passed. Oh, I'm not hundred percent sure. So I'm hoping that I'm correct on that. It's been so long now and you know, I don't have the facts in front of me, but um, I'm pretty sure at least one of them passed. So my brother kind of had an inkling something was not right. And he remembered this story when he was in school before I, you know, before I was even there, he said, we got to take him to the hospital. I'm like, I'm fine. I'll, I'll be all right. I'm good. You know, and I really didn't want to go to the hospital because I was a college kid. I was healthy. I was, I was in the marching band. I was, I was working out basically with them every day of the week, um, preparing. And I was, a, I was a drummer. So it wasn't like I was like bottom end of the athletic ability. I'm not an athlete by any means, but um, I was in decent shape for, for that time. So my body, you know, it's just. So I said, I'll be fine. I didn't want to go to the hospital. It wasn't a big deal. And so they finally got me down there. My, my brother actually, they, because it was game day, so they were parked way away. So they brought the car, and I remember my mom taking me down, and I passed out on her in the high, and then in the elevator. And I'm I'm six foot one, and she's she's not short. She's like five eight, five nine, but still, you know, I'm six one. Pass out. She basically got me two, and they brought the car and went off. I mean, the whole time there though, that I was kind of in and out of like just not feeling great. They um. I kept telling him, like, God, these people are going to probably think I'm on drugs or something, and I'm just sick. So we get to, you know, my brother got me to the hospital. I don't know how fast he got there, but he got there pretty quick from my recollection. And they got me in, and I don't really remember a ton when they brought me into the ER. They got me back right away, and they started testing. You know, I didn't have any of the symptoms that would just say, wow, that's meningitis. They were getting ready um, to do some more tests. They, they said, you know, does he have a temperature? I didn't have a temp at that time. You know, what, what, you know, I was really dehydrated. So they had me on IV. 
And, you know, I just don't, they, they, none of the symptoms. They didn't have any bruising, nothing like that. All of a sudden they said, well, check his temperature again. And all of a sudden I just remember I had a cousin that was a resident doctor. He came up from Detroit, which don't know how he got there that fast either. But he was there with my doctors and, and, and just remember them saying, you know, he's crashing. And I remember hearing numbers going off when I was, you know, in the ER there. And I remember looking at my cousin and saying, I'm not going home today, but you make sure you tell my parents I will be home. And that's really the last I remember from there. I just know that my blood pressure had hit 50 over 15. And basically for two or three days, I was in an induced coma, just basically sedated so that I wouldn't mess with any tubes or wires if I came through. But they didn't know at that point for 24, 48 hours um, if I would have any sort of brain damage or anything like that. So uh, I think about 24 hours after I was sick, I remember kind of coming to, and I had a buddy there that um, a real good friend of mine who um, has done a lot for me as far as, you know, getting me back on my feet and um, making, uh, helping me be able to play again as a percussionist. Uh, I'm a music teacher by trade. Um, but I remember looking at him going, man, I'm really sick and I'm in Sparrow Hospital and uh, they can't pronounce my last name. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. right. And, I can relate and, to that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Can't pronounce my last name. I'm in, I'm in the ICU and I had this thing called meningitis and they were like, you know, they, they, first of all, they're shocked, but in, you know, in their own mind, they're celebrating a little bit here because they're like, well, we know that there's not a whole lot of like, if there's any sort of brain damage there, he's actually able to retain. And my cognitive, you know, my cognitive abilities were there and I had my, you know, I had all, all my receptors there and I was, it was kind of, kind of in tune with all that and just, I remember waking up and I see my, my hands were bandaged. I was being treated like a burn unit in, in a burn unit because that's actually where they moved me to when they stepped me out of the ICU. They put me in the burn unit just because of all the different um, scarring I had and the debridement they've had to do. Um, I had some plastic surgery when I was in Lansing to, to fix a lip that was kind of split down. Then they I was in the hospital for three weeks doing therapies, figuring out what I was going to do, getting better. And they suggested, you know, I was going to, well, they told me I was going to have to have amputations. And the hospital in Lancer was like, well, we're going to, you know, have to go to this point on his hand. And he's going to lose this and that. And I had a percussion teacher that basically said, she said, listen, save anything you can do. Save as much of his hands as you can. We'll work with it. We'll make it work. He'll graduate. And um, so the, the occupational therapist over her said, well, ask the doctor and the surgeon here where they would go if their child was in this situation. They did. So um, they ended up sending us to the, there's a, a hospital in Louisville called Kentucky, the Jewish hospital, where they did actually the first hand transplant surgery. Um, when that doctor was my doctor, they weren't functioning, but they did a hand transplant and uh, it was successful. And um, so they, they had me down there for another, th so I was in the hospital in East Lansing for three weeks for recovering from meningitis and just kind of getting that one surgery taken care of, uh, the plastic surgery on my lip and just kind of recovering. So then from there, we went straight down to Louisville. We drove down there and I was in that hospital while I was in, in their outpatient treatment for two weeks because, or a week, I can't remember if it was a week or two weeks, might've been two or a week and a half, but uh, I was down there because they had me doing whirlpool therapy. And that was to kind of, you know, regenerate tissue in my hands and stuff. And they actually saved more of my hand than they were thinking about in Lansing. So it was a good thing we went down there. So I was in the hospital and surgeries down there for three weeks. I underwent, you know, a six plus hour surgery on just the the amputations of I'm missing my big toe, my second toe, part of my fourth and fifth on my left foot. And I'm missing parts of um, my first finger, my middle finger and my ring finger on my left hand and my all four of my my. Um, 
my hand is just the finger, uh, middle finger, uh, pointer finger, middle finger, ring finger, and pinky part down all the way down to that second knuckle um, on my right hand. So I did lose some of that, and I had a lot of um, scarring and tissue. They actually at one point thought in Lansing that they were going to have to amputate my arm, which I'm lucky that they didn't do that, and I'm very you know happy they didn't. Um, you know, I know the range of symptoms of meningitis and the effects, the lasting effects, that's what people don't totally understand. They're all, they, they range so much. And I know we've talked about this off, off, off the mic a little bit, but you know, I, you know, just for me, you know, I, you know, and I, and I don't know how, how, how you've taken or how others have taken it, but for me, I'm like, man, I'm lucky. I'm a one, I'm above ground. I'm not, I didn't, I didn't, you know, unfortunately, yeah. fortunately fall victim to um, passing away from it. So I was very yeah, lucky. In because that, so many people in that do. Aspect. Right. Absolutely. And then, you know, I look at it and, you know, for me, I, did I have to relearn things? Yeah, I had to relearn everyday life. People don't realize that that's those are the lasting effects. I'll never get my fingers back. I'll never get I mean, there's prosthetics, but that, that doesn't do the same thing. You know, for me, it's not the same. And at this point in my life, I've lived longer without than I have with. But, you know, it's just there's there's all these lasting effects you don't realize. And then the trauma on top of that that you deal with, you know, I, with what I put my parents through and my brother through and my, my really good friends and family. So there's a lot of things people don't realize. You get sick, it's meningitis, you get you recover and it's over. And, you know, it, that's not always the case. Obviously, a lot of times it results in death or, you know, sometimes it'll result in, in major you know, long, long-term, in, you know, injuries that we sustain from meningitis. So it's kind of my story in a nutshell. Um, you know, I'm sure I missed a couple little details here and there, but, um, you know, it's kind of what I went through. So I really, really, I always like to kind of bring this point home. I was healthy at like six o'clock on a Friday night, nine o'clock. I wasn't feeling so great with my friends. I went home. I had like a cough or a cold, just the stuffy nose. I was run down since I need to get sleep because I knew you know, game day is a huge day. You start at five in the morning. I don't get home if it's a three thirty game until nine, ten o'clock, you know, or eleven, twelve o'clock at night, whatever time. You know, the game lasts four hours. If it's nationally televised, it's long. So, you know, I would wanted to get some rest, and and you know, by so six o'clock on a Friday or nine o'clock on a Friday to six o'clock on a Saturday, I went from a healthy college student that was in decent shape to a, a college student that contracted meningitis with a blood pressure of 50 over 15 and almost basically dead. So, I mean, that's what I like to tell people. And, you know, I don't like to tell them that, but what I, what I always want to get across and share is I went, it was that quick. It was that quick. And, and, and not having a lot of the symptoms. And, and even with that short of a range, when you see those symptoms, is it maybe too late? You know what I mean? So, like, it's it's such a weird horrible disease that's just so hard to pinpoint other than we know that there's vaccination out there and the vaccination is very very effective with the booster and everything so uh, i think they're still doing the booster you might have better information with me with that but i I think it's still a booster and then the the other shot so but yeah there's vaccination out there that's so 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 could have saved my life definitely just to back up a minute there's a lot of things to unpack there so i'm going to ask you some want to talk a little bit about some of the things you just said but Regarding vaccines, yeah, to the best of my knowledge, there are um, at least five strands. There's five strains, of, right? Of meningitis, A, C, W, Y, and B. And B. And the A, C, W, and Y are available. Yes. Well, actually, all of them are have a vaccine. A, C, W, Y strands are all grouped together in one vaccine, mm-hmm. which I think you get around age 11. And then there's a booster available around age 16. Right. And then there's also a meningitis B vaccine 
that's available around age 16 as well. So, so there's three. So the booster is the booster to the meningococcal, um, the va- the vaccine for ACW and Y, and then you get a second one at 16, and then B you get at 16. So there's technically there's three shots three you shots. have to get. Yeah, three. So one a booster, and then the B. Yeah. Correct. Got it. So, see, I didn't know 100% anymore. I'm glad you corrected uh, me because I don't want to give wrong information. No, we, no, <laughs> we, no, we do not. Now, do you know what strand you had? Yes, I did. I had W. So I would have been, even back then, because the B, funny enough, um, the NMA has sent me um, to, 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 to meet some folks uh, a few years back um, through one of the vaccination um, companies. I believe it was Novartis, and they um, – they, I think the B strain had just been approved or been, you know, used for, I don't know if it was in the UK or if it was in the States at that point, I can't remember, but it was really awesome to hear that. And I got to talk to the person that kind of, you know, helped design that vaccine, which was yeah, that super cool, cool to yeah. me, which was really neat to talk to and just, you know, share my story and just appreciate that other folks are able to get this and, and hopefully be, you know, we can, they can save some lives from it, which I'm sure they already have not, to, uh, you know, not to hope. I'm pretty sure they already have. So yeah, it was, that was neat. So uh, when I was in school, unfortunately B was a very common strain and it was prevalent. There wasn't a vaccine for, it, but I had W. So mine would have been covered had I known about the vaccine. Yeah. I think I had the, a B strand myself. I, I don't, mm-hmm. not hundred percent certain about that, but from the people I talked to and the records that I have, it looks like it was the B strand. Mm-hmm. I want to go back a little bit to the Friday and Saturday. So you're okay. Friday, you skip practice, you go to the hospital Saturday morning yeah. to the hospital Saturday morning. No. So Friday. So here it is on Friday night. It's a little bit, maybe I was a little confused. It was a Friday night. I was, I was healthy. It was fine. I was hanging out with friends. Saturday morning, I missed the rehearsal because, like, late Saturday, Friday night, early Saturday morning, I wasn't feeling good. Like, I had like flu like symptoms. That's really, I guess, the only symptom that I really had before I went into the hospital. So, Friday, I was under the weather. Early Friday or late Friday night, early Saturday morning, I was flu like symptoms. I missed the rehearsal Saturday morning. Um, starting to feel a little bit better. Did the call in nurse. Parents were there. You know, for it was probably, I don't know if it was a noon or a three o'clock game. I can't remember now. It's been so long. But um, they were there for the game. Um, I remember them coming. They went to the game. They came back, and that's when I was six. So I guess like six, it must have been a noon game because by six o'clock, um, you know, that's when everything started to crash. And I was, you know, pretty much on my deathbed. Your parents, how far away were your parents from? What what city is uh, Michigan State? Well, in? they live Michigan State's in East Lansing. They live in the Detroit area, the metro Detroit area, and the suburbs in, in, of Detroit. And but they were already there. Like I said, they were there for the game. So they, I was lucky that they were there. They didn't have to come up. So I mean, they're an hour and a half away. But you know, they I just was lucky enough that it was on a Saturday, and I and they happened to be there for what, probably the one of the biggest games of the year. Ah, uh, yes. That game was... Uh, okay, hold on. <laughs> I just looked up the score. You said 99, right? It was 99, and it was a very... It was like a field goal win, I think, or something like that. Michigan State beat Michigan 34-31 to that day. Yeah. It was a close game. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so back to where you are now. You are... So you're going to the hospital. Your parents are there. Your brother's there. 
and you've got a uh, friend that's coming in from Detroit as well. How long were you in the hospital there? So, yeah, I was in the hospital in East Lansing for three weeks. So I was in ICU for about a week or so. This is where it gets a little hazy because I don't. I didn't yeah. really investigate this sure. too much after the fact. Um, and then I was in the burn unit, which is honestly was basically very similar to the ICU at that point. I mean, because it's such a, you know, ever there's like a lint free area they had to wear. It was kind of like what you're dealing with now with COVID um, with masking and being clean and sanitary with everything. Cause it was, you know, the, it was a burn unit. And, and then for me having, you know, this, this, this disease, you know, they just wanted to make sure I was healthy and didn't get anything else from it to complicate it. Yeah. And just to re, state what you said earlier, uh, as you're perfectly healthy 24 hours later, you're not or right. something along those lines. It is extremely fatal. A lot of people do not make it through this. A lot of people are misdiagnosed and don't make it through it. And then there are people like us who I would consider to be extremely blessed and fortunate that, um, mm-hmm. are diagnosed at some point, um, correctly and treated correctly at the facilities that we were, we were fortunate enough to be at, but it, it is very fast and very fatal and it's you know it the lasting effects from from meningitis i mean to to this day you know we both we both we we live with the 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 remnants of and the, and the memory maybe not think about it all the time but we're we're different than we were then mm-hmm. and we can point to meningitis for that yeah no absolutely I, i've got you know every day you know i think about it and it's it's fortunate and unfortunate because I you know I'm really happy to be alive. Would I would I not want to go through all that again? You know, there's parts of my life that I think it really opened me up to, uh, you know, as a person, as a human being. But I mean, there was a lot of pain and suffering, especially for my family, um, kind of seeing me go through that. But you know, like you said, it is. It's there all the time. You know, when I'm teaching, I teach by day, and that's my trade. I deal with kids. Talk. I talk to kids about it all the time. They see it all the time, um, which is a good thing too, though, because you know I teach at the high school level, so a lot of those students are going to go off into college. And yeah, they are right at the right at the age for those things. Yeah, right. So they don't necessarily know about it. So I mean, yeah, but but I live with it every day. You know, it's but it's something that I've gotten used to, and like you said, you know, I'm very blessed and and and, and feel very lucky and fortunate to come away with it the way that I did, and. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it was a part of what it was. And, you know, there are things that, that it did make me a better person too. you know, take, don't take life for granted. I, I became a lot more open and outgoing with folks. So it's, you know, it had its trade off and I'm not trying to say it, let's go out and give an enjoy because that's not what I want, but, <laughs> yeah. but, no, you I know, know what you're I, saying. I, it's... there's, there's, it, 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 but it is, it's always there. It's always, yeah. fine. you know, as, as I've gotten older, it's a little bit easier just I've lived my life now longer without having parts of my, my fingers and, t- and toes than I did with them. And, you know, I, I've used prosthetics. I've used them in the past. I, I have a set that is being made that are awesome. They're going to help me with, with teaching. But my everyday life, it's like, this is who I am. You know, I go to shake. It's, it's weird to me. I, I almost feel more Im- not embarrassed because that's not the word I want to use. I feel more self-conscious when I wear the prosthetic that I have than I would if I just walked into the gas station to, to, to buy a soda than if I had it on, like mm-hmm. just be, be. so it's, it's, I think the, the older I get, the more it's kind of, it's kind of like grieving, 
it's grieving, you know, a loss or something, you know, the, it's, it's, you never forget about the memory, but you know, you learn to kind of move on and look at positive yeah. sides of it. That's what I try to do. Yeah. That, that's the best way to do it. So the, the biggest takeaway from you physically, what was there a lot of, was there a lot of rehabilitation, physical type rehabilitation? Yeah, there was actually. So, you know, you, when you don't think about it, but you lose fingers, I had to learn how to button a shirt you know, put a key in a hole or pick up a penny off of a table or off the ground. That was not an easy one to learn, but you know, you have to do that. So I was in, so as soon as I was out, I was so six weeks hospital, all that time I was doing PTOT all the way through. So then I was in pretty much, I want to say it was like three or four days a week. I was in, it might've been five days a week that I was in PTOT um, every day or for five days a week. And we would just, you know, I would learn how to it started with walking to, you know, in the hospital to tying shoes to doing everyday life and learning those skills to then learning how to be a music major. So they had me take a year off of school. So I lost a whole year. You know, after talking to my doctor, who had an amazing doctor that was a fellow with um, the folks that I had in, in Louisville that was practicing in Detroit. So it was really nice that I was able to kind of follow up with somebody that had gone through the same or they were they were a part of that lineage. So um so I had lots of PTOT, and then, you know, I I was uh, – Michigan State made, like, their first bowl game, a decent bowl game in a long time that year. And I still remember telling the, the, the therapist, I'm like, man, like – because I got home, like, Thanksgiving weekend is when I got home from the hospital in Louisville. And so when I went in for my – they removed all the staples and stitches and all that, and I was talking to the, the therapist, the physical therapist, or occupational therapist, so I was like – yeah, I really want to go to the, the bowl game. It's probably not possible. She's like, no, you got to be here doing your therapy. Well, I like, that's when I lost it. Cause like really part, a big part of me surviving was being in the marching band. They would visit me all the time in the hospital. They, the, the, the band director there at Michigan state would come and visit me every day. He had the students, you know, they can't lead in prayer. So what they did is they sang the alma mater every day before rehearsal. I believe it was before, and they would come up to the front of the, the, the field and sing it, and then they would talk about me every day. So, I mean, the power in, like, that group and that 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 the, those people was amazing. That's other than, my, you know, outside my family, the, the marching band and those friends that I have still to this day really did save my life. And uh, so I really wanted to be a part of that game, kind of looping back to what we were talking about. I really wanted to be a, go to that uh, that bowl game, and that therapist kind of crushed my dreams, and I literally lost it. So I was in tears. I'm sitting there. My doctor, who was also a Michigan State grad, and a very very fine fine man, he looked at me, what's wrong? Are we hurting him? Like no, I mean no, yeah, you're hurting. Him. You're pulling out thousands of staples and stitches, but that's not really why I'm upset. And I, you know, I said I'm not going. And he looked at me. He goes, who told you that? I said I didn't want to rat the woman out. I felt really bad. And, he looked at, he knew who it was. He looked and said, no, he'll be going and we're going to make sure he goes and we're not going to stop him from doing anything. So I was home from the hospital. Like Thanksgiving was probably later in the year that year. Cause I remember three weeks later I was on an airplane going down to Orlando for the citrus bowl. And I marched and played and quite a few parades. I participated in the halftime show. So, you know, I, I have to say, like I said, I was lucky. I was in really good shape. That marching band, in more ways than one, you know, through the through the power of my friends and that group, and just the support, to um, to just being in shape. I mean, you don't think of band students being in shape unless you are a band student yourself, or your band parent, or your band director, or whatever. You've never been involved. You don't think that band is that physical or marching band. 
And it is, especially when you get to the collegiate level. I mean, it is. It really is the moving to could I compete with the football players? Absolutely not. But thank God I was in that good of shape from from that program. Mm -hmm. So you're playing percussion, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what is percussion like when you're not fully equipped with all the fingers that you're used to? A lot of thinking outside of the box and being creative. First of all, thank God I was in, again, I was in a creative, a creative discipline that, that you can kind of, you know, work, work with, well, if, if it's, if it doesn't look right, does that mean it's wrong? You know what I mean? Kind of thinking critically uh-huh. about things, yeah. so looking at different angles of how we can. So we did back then find a prosthetic company that was more cosmetic, but they took a liking to me. So I had that friend I was telling about who's an amazing musician, um, and performer he performs out in dc now he's in one of the big the big groups that do all the president he's, he's in the military band does all the presidential stuff but um he modeled his hands so that they could create curvature for playing four mallets i did have enough so four mallets mean two mallets in each hand i did have enough length in my hands to be able to play like drum set things like that i played in the basketball band i played you know did all the, the concert band stuff uh the things that were really a little more difficult to do were the ability to teach all the instruments. So like on clarinet, you have to cover holes. Well, I can't cover holes and I have different lengths in my hands. Um, you know, to hold a flute is not easy. Brass instruments aren't so bad for me to play, but ones that have like a lot of, lot of keys like saxophone to get my hands around it or to cover holes or forget oboe and bassoon with all the half fingerings and stuff you have to do on those instruments. So I was, I mean, th- those things I had to learn how to, how can I demonstrate to kids or to students in a way that they will understand, but I cannot physically show them. And so it's been a lot of thinking outside the box. The one thing that sticks with me and I'll never forget is my percussion professor said, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like. It's, you know, if you, you, when they do auditions or whatever, if I were to go on and play, they're always blind anyways. You go in behind, what I mean by blind auditions is they go behind a curtain and the people in the audience, they don't, they don't know who you are or how you're playing. So if you get a sound that sounds beautiful, it's going to sound beautiful no matter how you do it. So she said, don't ever get caught up in the minutia of does this look right? Or it doesn't look like you could take a picture of it and put it in a textbook. So yeah, I, you know, that those are the things that kind of stuck with me. So trying to just think outside of the box, but again, it was a long road. I wasn't at back to where I was my freshman year. When I walked through those doors at Michigan state, I wasn't there until uh, at least a year and a half to two years later. I wasn't back to that. So it took me two years just to get to, the physical skill sets I had, yeah. you know, the, obviously the musical, the, that stuff I could keep learning the, the stuff that's cognitive, you can learn, but those physical things, I, I wasn't even back in shape to like, this is where I'm at. So I can get out and perform till at least two years later. I think a year and a half, two years later. So it's, it was a long road. It's still to this day. Like I said, I'm still trying to figure out how can I demonstrate clarinet better? How can I demonstrate flute better? Then it's all because I don't have fingers. So, you know, or I don't, I've, I've lacked, not a total gone, but parts of fingers and the, the ones that the fingertips that are important that I need to cover holes or do whatever I would need to do. Okay. So let's go back a little bit further now again. And you talked about the rehabilitation in the hospital. You mentioned walking again and just very basic human functions. Was that, cause I've experienced that myself with, with just, okay, we're mm-hmm. going to walk or we're going to sit up in bed after being right. in bed for a week or however many, however many for days sure. it was. So was, how did you make it through those basic skills uh, being relearned without being just, without totally losing your mind? 
support. I'm telling you, I knowing that I had that, you know what it was? I, I honestly, it was that band. It really was not only the support, but knowing that I wasn't going to give up playing in the Michigan State Marching Band and Drumline because I was sick. I was going to figure out a way to do it. And that's kind of what my motivation, that and my family, um, they're with me 100% all the way. And, you know, my parents, my brother, my my cousins, I had, I had family from Europe. Um, my dad was born in Malta. <clears throat> Uh, which is a little country, uh, tiny country south of Sicily. Um, and and they sent two of my uncles. When I woke up, two of my uncles were there. Um, and they were ready to send more. So that support, I had a support system. And I'm very lucky. And I just wanted to do it because I, I still had things left to do. I still wanted to be a musician. I still wanted to perform. I still wanted to be a college student. I still wanted to be in that marching band. And those were my driving factors, you know. And and. In, tr- in having those those educators around me, those teachers, those professors, those band directors, those you know administrators, they they having them in my corner and, and being creative and working with me, you know I can I, I can say without a doubt that you know I, I'm sure if I went anywhere else would have been fine, but the folks in Michigan State I only encountered one time where I had an issue with somebody where they said, well, is this something you really can do? And and you know it was the only time they everybody there was a hundred percent encouraging. Um, still to this day, you know, there's, there's, there's folks that I'll never, I can't think enough and I don't know how to repay them because I'm, I'm here standing and yeah. able to still do what I love. Yeah. I, I can relate to that too. The support system for me was, was tremendous. And I think that that kind of is a common thread that runs through people that survive any traumatic experience. And in particular, as I talk to meningitis survivors, seems to be the case as well. A lot of family and a lot of support. It seems like I was at I was at college as well, so I can totally relate to the administrative element of that and the professors and teachers and things like that too. So it's really something that it it seems like it's, you know, let's we're gonna walk five steps today and we're gonna walk ten steps tomorrow. And it's it's so basic that it's just it it really boggles your mind to think that okay, I'm I'm nineteen, I'm eighteen years old. And I'm, I'm learning how to walk like a child that might be 10 months old or 18 months older, you know, something like that. So it's just real crazy. And my family and my faith and my friends were extremely important to me during that. And that's mostly what brought me through that. So let's walk a little forward to let's, let's move forward at Michigan state. Yeah. What was your path through Michigan state? Did you graduate? Yeah, yeah, I graduated the music education degree. I, uh, I, who took me a little longer, you know. Part yeah, of that was me too. Because, I, I was on the the five year plan. Oh, which, well, you I know, got you. I got you beat, man. That's okay. <laughs> my program, although my sorry, my program was was um is already a five year program. So because you have student teaching built into that and all that good okay. stuff, but um, yeah, I went. Should I say it out loud in the, in the, in the wonder that some of my students may hear this someday? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you, you incriminate uh, went, yourself if you want. You do, do whatever I went, you can. I went, I went over five years. How about that? Okay. Um, I went over a lot. Which part of that was, hey, I wasn't a great student when I was a freshman. And I, my students know about this. I was not a good student my freshman year. And there's some things I wish I would have done different. Um, but, you know, I was a college kid and I was young and didn't wasn't smart about, um, you know, not 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 anything horrible just about making sure i go to class because you know the professors don't always 
check up on that like they do in high school, right? So, um, so those things, type of things got in the way, just silly college, normal pitfalls. But, um, so yeah, it took me a little longer. And then on top of that, being sick and having to like, kind of get back to, you know, you know, my freshman year really was, was where I, where I left off my freshman year kind of is where I was technically supposed to be my junior ish year. So, um, yeah, it took a long time and, you know, in that and just wanting to be a college student and wanting to enjoy life. When you go through a traumatic experience like this, at least my experience was, I'm not going to let anything go anymore. I'm going to, if somebody says we're going to go to a concert, then, but it's in, you know, Chicago and we have to be back for class on money, I'm going to go. Um, or if it's, you know, I get to study abroad or I get to play in this group somewhere, or I get to travel and do the basketball band, which took away from some other classes that I needed to get done right at that time. I did them and, and I experienced that. So it did take me a little longer, but a lot of it towards the end or after I was sick was just mainly due to just wanting to be, to, to, to still enjoy those parts of my life, yeah. you know, that yeah, I those still are, had. Yeah. Those are important. What about socially? Was it hard when, once you get back to campus and back to life in air quotes, normal, um, was it tough to get, connected back into the social situation at school? You know, there was no Facebook. There was none of that stuff. But we did have AOL and AOL Instant Messenger and all those good things. So I did stay in touch with everybody all through the time. I had that band, and that band did not leave me or, you know, give up on me. And my best friends were my best friends. I still – I was more outgoing afterwards. It opened me up more. Um, the hard part – there was a couple tough parts with, with being back in school is one – being the student that caused the mass uh, campus to mass vaccinate was weird. Um, I can, I caused, <laughs> oh, that's I, you. You were that guy. Yeah. Well, that's what happens. Well, you were that guy and, you know, years, I'm talking years later, somebody told my stories with some friends in where I'm currently at. I was already teaching and somebody in that group called me the outbreak monkey, which really made me mad because yeah, sure. <laughs> I thought that was really bogus. That was the only time I've ever gotten mad, but like, you know, those were the things that bothered me. It never really bothered me that I was sick. It bothered me when I would hear that students, when they were, if they were in the marching band or wearing their marching band jacket, other folks would walk on the other. It's kind of like what we're dealing with with COVID right now. You hear somebody cough, you like run to the other wall, you know? Um, it's, 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 you know, they would walk on the other side of the street. And that stuff bugged me because I felt like I caused that. And it wasn't anything, you know, you could say anything about me, you know, the one thing really bothered me, but just to, to, to say, to hurt other people just because somebody got sick is terrible. Um, so those were the kind of things that bugged me the most. But other than that, you know, I was very, I was well liked and, and accepted and that group was so great to me. Um, lots of friends for them still to this day. Um so my social aspect wasn't so bad. Um, I did also end up doing some other things during that time in college after I was sick. It kind of it blew up in the news. For some reason, me being sick really blew up in the news, at least up in our area. And so I was always getting calls to do things that for for um, advocacy, whether it's news people that wanted to just hear my story. Um, I, I did, I was closed off for a little bit on that stuff, but then I started to open up and do speak a little more things. I was invited to some classes at state to Michigan state to, to speak to some of the local news. And then through the marching band director, somehow they got a, a hold of him. Nova reached out and said, we're doing this, this documentary called killer disease on campus. And would I be interested? And he said, listen, I've been filtering out a lot of garbage that people that want to talk to you. 
but this one seems legit. And it was, so I did a, it was a big part of the killer disease on campus documentary through the Nova series. It's, I don't think it's on streaming or anything like that. Now I've looked a few times. It's not, but I think you can still maybe get a DVD or I, I have the VHS. So that's how old it Whoa, is. Oh, VHS. Um, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it, but it is great. You know, obviously some of the, um, the, the, the vaccination plan and things like that, since there have been more boosters and the B strain is now has a vaccine. Obviously that's outdated, but it's out there. So I've done some of that stuff and advocacy. I spoke at a, you know, state level for, for vaccination um, requirements, things like that. So, you know, and I had support. Those guys were great. I was in a group that was amazing. And, and that's one thing about the arts and music and band. And I'm sure in the sport, I'm not a sport. I'm not athletic other than watching Michigan state stuff. Um, uh, you know, that's that's a part of being in the group. So I never had a, had a hard time. And that was what was great about or why, why I was lucky that I had that group, because I didn't. I think if it would have been if I would have been a student that wasn't really involved, I did my classes every day. I was a normal everyday student. I wasn't in the marching band. I think it would have been a lot more difficult for me. And I might have become more closed off when I did the opposite. Were there any other things that were different about you post meningitis than they were pre meningitis, other than the the fingers and the toes? Were there any other nerve damage, any other bodily functions, any other you know things that didn't return somewhat soon after your therapies and things happened? No, you know I I was lucky again. I just hit the finger and toes. Um, I had a lot of skin grafts and scarring. I still have lots of scarring over my arm and body. Um, but most of that is, you know, I didn't have any, any sort of, um, brain damage or any sort of cognitive issues. Um, you know, I didn't have lingering issues other than the amputations, obviously, and the scarring. So no, I do think though that, um, part of the onset, I don't want to say I wasn't in a depressed state, but I think that my mental health could have been better. I think it affected my men- affected my mental health a lot. Going from this, you know, I was sick. I was really, it was a focal point for a long time. And, you know, I just, I didn't take care of myself like I should have totally during that time. And I kind of let mental health get in the way and, and uh, gained a lot of weight. So I got myself into a place that wasn't great. And I think it was to do with just depression and not knowing that the depression was there. Um, because on the outside, I was able to put up a good front. You know, um, so I think that was a lingering. I think it. I think it does have last. Whether or not we, tr- we, you know, we try and mask it or whatever. You know, I was. I, would I change things? No. But do I think there were some issues that I probably should have sought out and and thought about and got a little help with? Yeah, I think that. It, you know, I had right away after I was sick. That was a part of the treatment plan. Was was therapy because you're going from something you're used to to losing things. Um, and I think I wish I would have continued that more. And, you know, that's something I always encourage with people is just taking care of their mental health and being aware of their mental health because, you know, mine was meningitis, but, you know, anybody, everybody has anything. Everything is big in their world. Anything that happens to anybody is, is, is a big deal. Um, whether or not we think it's a big deal, it's always a big deal to that person. So being checking in with your mental health, and that's one thing that I don't think I did a very good job of after I was sick. Yeah, I don't think I did either, actually. And that certainly is something that, it comes along for the ride with any kind of change uh, in your life, dramatic change for sure, but really any kind of change. And I think I, I certainly struggled with extreme anxiety, or at least in my mm-hmm. mind it was extreme. 
and from my experience. No, take it, man. It is. It's you. You. You're the one that that can. It's you. I would. It was extreme. It is big. It's for you. Yeah. We all. We all. We all relate to things differently. You know. When I, I think it's parenting now that has gotten me into this mindset. It's like. You know, my my friend's kid, he may have this horrible temperature and fever and it's a huge deal. But on, you know, someone else's end, they may be their kid may be going through surgery and it's a huge deal. And they're both just as equally important and things that you that you embrace. So I I, I try and stray away from that myself. I try and think everybody's got it's a big deal and it should be a big deal to that person. So, yeah, man, it's it is a big deal. There's just so many things that you're trying to process at really any age, but for us in our, in our late teens, all the changes that you're, you're going through with, uh, just physically anyway, any teenager, and then being in school and, and on your own and trying to start your life and do all the things you're supposed to do to get through school and do all that type of stuff and be social. And with it, then you throw this, this curveball in there that, you know, everybody experiences a curveball at some point in life. But at this particular time in life, I think you and I are a bit unique because that's when our curveball was thrown at us. And, you know, there's a lot of mental things that I wasn't checking on. I wasn't aware of. I I certainly felt different and certainly thought different. But I think I put on, a, like you said, a good face and tried to just power through those things. And there certainly were some times where I think some mental health checks (laughs) and some other things would have would have would have helped me for sure. And I think too, you know, I asked just kind of socially because it, it was difficult for me to re-engage socially. It wasn't mm-hmm. extremely difficult, but it was everybody that I was close with, obviously, was very familiar with my situation. Everybody right. was very helpful. Everybody was very accommodating and all those types of things. But then it, sometimes it gets to the point where it's like too much accommodation where you're just like, you know, right. I'm still I'm still the guy you remember. I'm different, but, you know, there's right. the, the core is still the same. So let's keep doing these things. And then you kind of get in a, in a, in a rhythm. And it, it was tough for me to find a rhythm and to find the right, really the right people. Uh, again, not that I was with the wrong people, but it just all of a sudden for me, like I didn't have any friends that were blind before, before I had mm-hmm. meningitis. So right. the, I suspect you didn't have a lot of friends that that were missing fingers and toes. Yep, absolutely. So finding Never somebody to, to relate to that type of things on a real friend basis, like, I've, oh, yeah, I've been through that. I know these kind of things. It wasn't easy. Yep. And to, to try to act like I'm normal or be like I'm normal again, it took a lot of energy. And it took a lot of uh, just, I don't know, it took a lot of, it just took a lot to to do the, the things that I was used to doing. So I had to change some things which is fine and that's just how it works, but not everybody was receptive to that because as I'm saying, I'm, I'm still the same old guy, but I do have some differences and some people are like, well, this is the same old guy. So it's the, it's the same old, it's the same old John and just wasn't the case. And so for, for me, the vision loss was, was really the primary thing that people would know about for me, but something that was kind of secondary to that and almost equally as difficult to, to get through or is challenging was I have currently and since the inception of meningitis have had what's called a neurogenic bladder, which means boil it down to the most easiest way to describe it is that I use a catheter for urination. 
And I didn't know anybody that used a catheter for urination (laughs) in college either. And, you know, I was, I wasn't a party animal, but I certainly was a guy that went out and hung out with friends and we Mm -hmm. went places and we did things. And all of a sudden I am extremely interested in what the bathroom situation is about where we're going. Almost maniacal. Like, okay, where are we going? I'm trying to plan things. And usually you just kind of go with the flow. You're 19, 20 year old kid. You just go with the flow. No big deal. But all of a sudden I've got to be very concerned with where I'm going to go to the, to the bathroom, you know? And I didn't have any friends that were using catheters at the time either. (laughs) So, Hmm. you know, adjusting to those types of changes, it just takes a lot. It just takes a lot out of you and it creates a lot of, uh, stress and things that I wasn't used to. And I think, kind of as you were mentioning about the mental health thing, I think I think really there were some good opportunities for me to have some mental health checks and just yeah. reassess some things. And and there probably were some things that I should have changed, but I didn't. And I don't know if, if I looking back really would have again. But it's just it just it is what it is. And it was what it was. Right. And and I, I powered through those things and it's just the way life goes. Yeah, I mean you're looking at twenty twenty two years, twenty one ago and there weren't many places where you'd hear even men talk about mental health period so like for us to get mental health checks or say we needed it wasn't the thing you know my parents and family 100 percent would support it but it was ne- it was a stigma you know what i mean almost to me i'm looking back and now it's like you know i'm gonna tell people you know i want people to know that you know i needed to check in on my mental health because the, the depression is huge and, and things that you know out of our control like we were saying earlier people go through things no matter how big or how small it can trigger anything and it's just so important for everybody to check in on their mental health and i think but that was really really huge for me i think going through is just looking back on man i mental mentally was not healthy i was not taking care of myself um not that i was doing it putting myself in any danger but like there's definitely things that i look back and go well, I probably should have thought about a couple of those things before I got to point, you know, from point A to point B. But, uh, you know, that's just part of it. But I think that it's huge, like you said. I think and I'm glad we're discussing it because I don't get to discuss that much with folks. So I'm glad that we've talked about it. So folks, you know, maybe maybe there's folks out there, too, that, that maybe need to check in on mental health, too, sometimes. And knowing that others do, then it's, you know, it's it's good. Yeah, especially in the COVID world we're living in and, and everybody's mm-hmm. locked down and, and just all the craziness that's going on politically and for sure. And medically and just it's just a it is a wild a tough time. It's a wild time. Well, and as we're sitting here talking, I'm thinking to myself, going, Man, a lot of the stuff that they had to do when I was sick <laughs> or things we're doing just every day, you know, we're getting my you know, my I have daughters that you know, they, they put a mask on before they go in somewhere or when we leave or you know we don't really go in anywhere but when we go if my daughter has a doctor's appointment you know they're getting masked up they're using hand sanitizer all those things that they were so meticulous about when i was sick it's like wow it's like crazy and just talking about it, i was like well that's kind of what we're doing now <laughs> now now it's the norm now it's right. just how we live and and i have uh young children also and they this is what they'll know this right. is how they will know the world so that kind of leads me into uh, another topic of the dad experience. You're a podcaster yourself. You're a professional. Yeah. Unfortunately though, COVID and, and, and some things um, with family that, that we're kind of just, we're just so busy right now. Um, 
it's kind of been on hold, but I have about 150, 130-ish, somewhere in there. I don't know. I have to go back and look at the catalog. Episodes out called from uh, my podcast called The Dad Experience. Basically, and it's still there. I haven't shut it down. I haven't said it's done. I just am on hiatus. So um, we're, we're on all the the, the major um, platforms. You can get us at uh, Apple Podcast, you know, Google, wherever. Just look for us, the Search the Dad Experience. I'm sure you can find us on most platforms. But um, but I started it because um, my wife and I struggled to have our first child. We, we are an IVF family. Um, my, my oldest daughter, my second daughter, was, was not an IVF child, but my, my, my oldest was. Um, so we dealt with that for years, just even trying to conceive, seeing our friends and family around us kind of go through all that. And we were just like, man, it was horrible. And that was, it was a big deal to us. And every time somebody would, you know, announce it was, it was, we were so happy for them. It was hard for us to get happy because we were struggling. So we ended up having my oldest daughter. And then at the, um, was it a five month scan? I can't remember what scan it was. My wife's going to kill me because I probably should remember that. Um, but, uh, we found out that she had, um, congenital heart defect. She had a complete AVSD. So we knew that, you know, we had to monitor and make sure she was fine, but we knew that she was going to be able to be born and not have to have like surgery right away. And they were going to prolong it. We thought it was going to be about three months and it ended up being about six. I want to say she was born in October. And then we, we had to take her in in June. We thought we were going to take her in January, February. So they, they had to reconstruct, basically she had to build the four chambers and kind of reform those walls um, when she was, you know, six months old. So we dealt with that. And that's kind of when I started. So kind of like we are now, we were quarantined, another relation, we were quarantined basically from when she was born in October to when she had surgery in in, in June, because we did not want her to get a cold. We did not want her to get sick, because if they did, they might have had to bump the surgery up, or they might have to do something, or who knows what effects of it had. So we were stuck. And I said, well, what am I going to do? I got this time at home. Not that I wasn't busy because I was busy with a newborn, but you know, you need, you need dad time, alone time. So I said, well, I've always been into podcasting or been into media and sharing news media, um, things like that. I, I played in bands before. So I'm always into like just opening up and being part of society. And I said, well, what can I do? Let's start a podcast. I thought the platform was pretty neat and I wanted to do something. I took a page out of my, my education, uh, educator background, which was don't reinvent the wheel. If it's there, borrow, share from each other, help each other out. So I said, well, there's tons of dads that I know that are out there. I said, why not start with my story and then bring on a dad or two every week or every, right then it was like bi-monthly. Then I went to weekly, um, bring them on and talk about being a dad. And it didn't matter. It was all walks of life. I had grandfathers on, I had stepdads on, I had, um, uh, same-sex marriage um, parents on um, partners. I've had um, all of the above. You know, I have my buddy on from Chicago, and then I've had Howie D on from the Backstreet Boys. So you know, I, I nobody. I want to hear from everybody. And I want to learn from everybody because I can learn from everybody. And it was kind of for me. I did the podcast for me because I wanted to. All the books I was reading were all com- comedic books for dads. Usually, not all, but a lot of them were. And the things like mental health aren't discussed and sharing emotions and being able to, you know, that it's okay to cry and things like that. So I wanted to talk to other dads and say, what is it really? And are there some out there that, you know, believe on those other sides? Yeah. But that was the why I created the dad experience because I wanted to learn and I wanted others to, you know, listen in and hopefully take something away too. And in the process, 
bring on more people that are listeners just so we can kind of create this community and this, this, this show. And I did, it, it really, it's, it has run for about 150 ish episodes. I want to say it's probably a little bit under that, but I'm kind of guessing. I can't remember. Um, and we, you know, just like I said, I have dads on from all walks of life. Doesn't matter if you're rich and famous or if you are a single dad or a single parent or any of the above. I've had moms on, I've had educators on, I've had lawyers on, I've had musicians on. So it's kind of what I did and I've learned so much from it. And uh, it was was a way for me to get away from the, what I like to call the beard, beard drinking and barbecuing dad stuff to like kind of what is really being a dad and emotionally and, and, and what do you do? You know, what if you're a stay at home dad or what if you're a single dad? Or So I just wanted to learn and what are the, what, what, what can we relate to and what can we take away? It's not a serialized podcast. So you can pick and choose what you want to you know, listen to if you relate to something more than others. So it's been fun doing it. Um, right now, like I said, it's on hiatus, but I'm looking forward to getting back to it. Maybe this is what I needed to do this with you, John, because uh, hopefully maybe with the next one, maybe we'll start to, we'll, we'll do one and have you on the dad experience. Hey, I'd love to do that. That's great. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, and, and it's just being a dad has been the greatest thing, you know, um, you know, I thought being sick and surviving was going to be the, well, the single most important thing that I remember. And I think both my child's, you know, my kid's births were, were definitely outweigh those things. And being a dad has been pretty awesome. And I have a great wife that's so supportive and um, there's a great mom who I learned tons from who really, really is what keeps our, our family together and the glue together. So I learned a lot from her and I've read a lot of the different things that she's read and given to me um, because she's just awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I can relate. I the uh, the mom in our world is what holds the is the glue that holds this this unit together too. And I uh, I thought that things that I had done previously might might you know like uh, surviving meningitis or uh, graduating high school you know might have been my greatest accomplishments, but it per- mm-hmm. turns out it's not. No, um, no. But but the the dad thing is a it's a work in progress and it's something that always needs honing. And I am For sure. I am by no means. By no means an expert. I always joke with my wife when we were, um, when we were pregnant with our, with our first one, we had a really bad winter storm, and we went to these classes at the hospital about parenting classes. You know, mm-hmm. like there was like four or five of them that were available, and we went to all of them. But our first child was uh, born about three weeks early, and the baby care basics class was um, scheduled. After <laughs> she was born, but before we uh, thought, before she was scheduled to be born, so right, right. Every time something, my wife looks at me and says, "Like, what do you mean you don't know how to do that?" I'm like, "Hey, I missed baby care basics." You know, I, <laughs> I I don't know these things. So does it really still work though? It does. Well, no, it doesn't. But I use it. <laughs> that's Sympathy that's what, card, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you know, the mom, mom's got these. They they have all this built in knowledge. They yeah, just no, know. They do. They just know. And, um, you know, I really needed the classes. Now, did Baby Care Basics make it or break it for me? No, <laughs> but that's that's what I say, you know? Right. No, and I think you're right, though. I think there's moms intuitively know this stuff, but I'm, I don't, you know, I don't make excuses that I know. I think a lot of it, too, is they're just, women are more in tune with, with checking in and making sure things are okay, whereas I don't think guys are as much, and I think that's something hopefully we will change in the future. No, guys they, are they, not good at think, that. Guys are right not or wrong. good. 
right or wrong and not good about talking about our you know emotions and not being and I think that's huge with with children with, with babies period I don't care if they're boy girl whatever at that age that's what they need they don't they they need to see mommy or daddy has you know a, a soft side an excited side a happy side a sad side because those are the things they relate to um you know and and I think that we don't do that well but I think moms and women do that a lot better than we do and we can learn a lot from that yeah God bless moms. That's oh, for sure. That, that's how I'll leave it today. So yeah, uh, Adam, great visiting with you. Yeah, this was was nice visiting with you. I really appreciate you having me on. I I love what the stuff you're doing, and I love that you are talking to other meningitis survivors and sharing your story because it, it it isn't easy to share, share our stories all the time. And thank you for giving me the opportunity, and thank you for sharing yours. And hopefully, you know, you reach more people that will learn about meningitis or be able to um, relate and, and, and get some sort of uh, comfort in that. So thank you for sharing your story as well. Hey, you're welcome, Adam. And uh, look forward to connecting with you again soon. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe. And for a complete transcript of this episode, connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.